What's up, everybody? This is Peter Nesbitt from TeamPay, and you're listening to Awkward Conversations, Tales from the Finance Department. Finance professionals are often forced to be the bad guy, which can lead to some uncomfortable conversations with employees about business purchases. On this show, I sit down with finance leaders to discuss their most awkward conversations and what they've learned throughout their careers. Listeners can earn free CPE credit for listening to this podcast. Just download the Earmark CPE app from the App Store or visit earmarkcpe.com. Hi, everyone. My guest today is David Lachter. David is the CFO at Dashlane, the password manager solution that simplifies your life online. From passwords to personal info, Dashlane is a simple solution for protecting all of your data. Thanks for being here, David. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And, you know, just a reminder, our podcast is called Awkward Conversations because finance is often forced to ask employees awkward questions about company spend. So why did you get this purchase approved in advance? Or, you know, did you put 20K in our corporate credit card? We can only have a policy for 5K. So I'd love to hear, you know, some sort of awkward conversation that you experienced in your career um, that might have been with employees or something related to their sort of finance life related to expenses. Uh, good question. Um, I mean, two come to mind, so I'm not going to, I'll give you both. Uh, they're very, yeah, very please. different. Um, the first uh, is is one, I've been lucky. I haven't had any like heart attack surprises of people with like crazy expenses. Uh, you know, you hear those stories, but I haven't had you to You are definitely lucky those. as a CFO to never see that, yeah. <laughs> But what I have had several times uh, is is folks who I should thank them because they're kind of floating the company money uh, on an interest-free basis. But people who wait, I had one employee in particular wait more than a year to submit an expense claim. And, oh, wow. You know, finance, accounting doesn't like it because it creates a lot of volatility. Um, I don't like it because it's against the policy. We do ask people to submit those mm-hmm. things in advance or it, it, as they incur. But, uh, you know, but I've had those conversations. It's always awkward, you know, oh, yeah. because they didn't realize it. They have all the best intentions. Obviously, it didn't bother them that much. Uh, but I've had to say, please, next time, uh, you know, uh, you know, submit them as you incur them. And I've never had to say, well, it's too late. You missed the boat, you know, so I, I have reimbursed them. Yeah, I had, a, I had a CRO once who would do a once a year expense report for the 50K of all of his travel meals. It was challenging. <laughs> it can be, indeed. And the other one is completely uh, different than this. It, it was, uh, I won't say the company, I won't say, uh, mm-hmm. you, you may end up being able to guess the company, <laughs> but I won't say the name. But it was a very senior person at uh, at an e-commerce company I used to work at mm-hmm. who, with all the best intentions, ahead of the holidays, you know, holidays mm-hmm. like any retail-related company is going to go through the big spike representing 60%, 70% of the annual business. And you have uh, an enormous spike in orders. Uh, your warehouse is going crazy. Inventory is flying in, flying out. And so you want to make sure you have enough shipping materials, especially boxes, you know, with your logo and all of that. And, you know, we had somebody who made the call of buying about a million dollars worth of uh, shipping boxes. Uh And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we would have bought those anyway. 
Um, and I understand there are economies of scale, but neither was logistics wasn't involved. So it wasn't their call and neither was finance. So you had a massive one-time payment that had to be done, but more, wow. trouble, more troubling than that, Peter, was the fact that because logistics hadn't been involved, we had to literally rent uh, tractor trailers where we would store the boxes because there was no space in the warehouse. Oh, man. So how, how much space do as a million dollar boxes like take up? L let's let's just say it's a it's more than one tractor trailer. It's a lot wow. of space. And it took us months to get through them. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those awkward conversations where, you know, the person meant well, but you say, mm -hmm. man, you got people around the table you work with, you know, involve them in that decision. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good segue. So you've had over twelve years of experience, you know, leading a variety of departments at venture-backed startups across both U.S. and Europe. You know, including this e-commerce company. So, can you just tell me a little bit more about your background? You know, what was your journey to becoming a CFO Dashlane like? And yeah, you know, and and what do you even do there? Yeah. Uh, no, good, good questions. Uh, I'll, uh, one small correction. It's actually, and I wish it was only 12 years. It's been 17 as, you know, since oh, I became nice. a CFO, but you know, who's counting, you know, uh, it feels yeah. like yesterday. Um, but you know, if you pick up a little accent at different times in the podcast, it's because I was born in Belgium and French was my first language, uh, moved to the States when I was young and, you know, after university, uh, went to, um, you know, the traditional route. I'm old enough to say, like, I graduated in the 90s. Uh, and so you went into banking or consulting if you were in, in, in a business degree. Yeah, me very, too, yeah. Yeah, very few people ventured. And I, you know, I admire those that did, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, I, I do have some friends who became entrepreneurs right out of, out, out of undergrad business school. And you know, they did really well. These were the booming 90s, you know, before the first dot-com bubble burst. But I went into consulting and from there, after about four or five years, felt a need to get more hands-on into the operations, into mm -hmm. technology I was fascinated by and moved into venture capital. I didn't quite yet get to that CFO post. And frankly, I never thought about becoming a CFO. I'll admit it to you. It, 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 it hmm. fell upon me as opposed to me seeking it out. Um, and then yeah, after, tell me more. Yeah. After three years as a, as a VC, uh, one of the CEOs we had backed um, asked me, hey, would you be my CFO? You know, I'm looking for one. And he didn't hmm. have to twist my arm too much because I had tremendous respect for him. A guy named Mark Suster, who's who's now a, a, a well-known investor on the West Coast at Upfront Ventures. Um, yep. And so he switched sides of the table. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the pun is intended because he has a, a podcast and, and blog called Both Sides of the Table, as you probably yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but, but he gave me my first shot as a CFO. And it stuck. I, I figured out that it was my sweet spot. I've learned a lot of lessons. Hopefully, along the way, get a little better uh, as a mm -hmm. CFO. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but that's that's kind of my background. Yeah. So, what were some of the things that like you know investing is you know quite different. You know, I mean, I'm sure depending on what stage you're investing as a VC too, or what you know size of businesses. What were some of the things you like immediately like loved about being a CFO versus an investor? Um, you know, and I would say. I would add, especially in smaller companies, right? It's one thing to be a CFO mm -hmm. of a big international conglomerate. I don't know what that's like. Yep. I haven't been one yet. But as a, a startup CFO, what I love is just being around a room of 
you know, talented people and making a decision based on whatever data and research you're looking at, uh, in, information about the performance of the business and making decisions and going and actioning them, you know, and I felt both in consulting and venture capital, I found myself one, if not two levels further away from that mm -hmm. action. You know, we could give advice, we could make an investment, but you're not actually running the business and making things happen. And I guess my DNA is structured where that, mm -hmm. yeah. that's what I'm attracted to. Yeah, no, that, that, makes, that makes sense. And so, you know, in this role, CFO, you've led finance, HR, sounds like customer support, IT, legal, biz ops. Yeah. You know, what do all these experiences leading these different functions teach you? I'll tell you, uh, five companies, and just for a little bit of calibration of those five companies, two have been B2B, one was e-commerce, one was in, I'd say, consumer services, but, you know, subscription services. And then finally, Dashlane is unique in, in that it's B2B and B2C. So for your audience to calibrate, it's been across multiple uh, mm -hmm. dimensions and different stages of development from Series A to, to Series D. And um, the first thing I've learned along the way um, is you can't do it all. And I've had the opportunity to work with some amazingly talented people, not only as peers, but also on my teams. Occasionally mm -hmm. had the chance to bring them along for the next gig. But I think first and foremost, it's, a, it's, it's learning what you're good at and what you're not so good at and mm -hmm. being able to hire great, especially to compliment you. That's, that's like, you know, really priority one. The other one, which was very interesting, and I only learned it at the earliest stage company I joined, was there's a right and a wrong time to hire a CFO. You know, don't, I, I would advise any founding team you know, to really think about that. The fact that they've hired a CFO doesn't mean they can tick a box. You may not be ready for a CFO. Not that the CFO is great. The CFO brings certain expectations and structures and work, and maybe a company's not ready for that. Yeah, I mean, you want to tell me a little bit more like about your experience there? Like what, you know, what did you learn when you were being brought in too early? Well, I learned that, you know, I, I, I'll naturally, it's part of CFO, CHRO, you know, mm -hmm. uh, even CTO to a certain extent, although different, you know, we, we help bring order, structure, compliance, all the things yeah. that make many people cringe. You know, you feel like you have like handcuffs, you're handcuffing the business mm -hmm. and that's not any of our intentions. You really want to unleash and em empower and enable the business. But, you know, there are certain boxes that I feel when I come in as a CFO uh, that I, I must tick. These are my, my, my responsibilities. And the one time it was clear that I think the company still needed to find um, uh, stability in other parts of the organization, whether it's yep. in uh, positioning and marketing, whether it's in specific product development, which I think were just of higher priority than adding structure on the financial and organizational side. Mm -hmm. And you, you, yeah. you, you can't do it all, even as an organization. So they were, you know, I think it was the right time. You know, I wasn't there that long, you know, compared to a dash lane, mm -hmm. but it was the, it would have been, that company would have been fine for a year, year and a half longer mm -hmm. with just a controller. That makes sense. And I think speaking of compliments, you mentioned it just previously in this, but you think about like hiring your complement or hiring a team to help you so you don't have to do it all yourself. When you come into our work, what are the, sort of the first one or two roles you either need to hire, think you always want to hire or want to make sure they have a, like a strong person that seeks to compliment you? Yeah. 
So I, I would say uh, there are three. The first two, uh, you know, is, um, is a controller. I'm not an accountant. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I play one on TV once in a while, but I'm not an accountant. And so I need a sparring partner who I know can take care of that. So, so that's number one. Number two is one more for later stage, but you've got to be really cleanly aware, self-aware as a CFO of when you reach that point. For a long time in several of my companies, I was equally acting general counsel. And by the way, I don't have a law degree. I'm sure you've read <laughs> through many contracts yourself, Peter. Oh, yeah. And in two of my five companies, I've had the chance of hiring a general counsel. And I can tell you, like, it's a godsend. Uh, you know, yep. David Davis and our general counsel here at, at Dashlane, he and I have been working together for almost, I think, four years next week. Um, he's, he's like a partner in crime. And um, uh, I think that marriage is almost like a good parallel to the marriage between a, a, a CFO and a CEO. You know, there's got to mm -hmm. be a really good tie in risk tolerance, in uh, uh, work ethic and drive and, and, and all, you know, just a, a willingness to say, I'm a support function. There's nothing bad about that. And I'm trying to empower the organization. So whether it's the sales team, the marketing team, Davison is closely tied to what they're doing to help them get business done. So yeah. that would be the second. And then the third and here at Dashlane, we're blessed, and I say it all the time. So, you know, when, when she finally hears the podcast, she'll, <laughs> she'll forgive me because it's not the yep. first time I say it is I learned at my third startup what it means to truly invest in people and have a great mm -hmm. uh, head of people. And before that, I was running HR and yep. I did the best job I could at it. And I think a CFO needs to be able to do that in a smaller organization. But when you reach hundreds of employees, you really need somebody who wakes up in the morning and goes to sleep at night, just caring about the various dimensions of the people side of the business, from talent to uh, career development, to uh, surveying staff, hiring, you mm -hmm. name it, all of those things. Yeah. And I, I had a chance to work with an amazing person at fab.com years ago, um, mm -hmm. And then more recently now for a number of years with Ciara here at, uh, at Dashlane. Yeah, that's great. And I think all those things ring true for me in my experience as well. Been interim head of HR and people multiple times. And yeah, that find that business partner there to really, to your point, manage your, your biggest investment in the company is so important. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So maybe let's just shift gears a little bit to just your experience as CFO Dashlane. So yeah. You know, how is this company different? You mentioned it's B2B and B2C. How, how is this different from other companies you've worked at in the past? I would say there are four or five ways that as a CFO, this has been, you know, re you know remarkably different um, or, 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 you know, just an evolution of what I've seen in the past. The first, as I said before, this is a combination of a B2B and a B2C business. Like our top competitors, we actually started in password management as B2C companies. So, you know, a tr you know, getting consumers to use our password manager, subscribe to higher levels of service. But what we've seen since five years, and especially the last couple of years, is companies have moved from being pioneers in adopting password managers for their staff to this being one of the top two, three, four top priorities for IT and InfoSec teams uh, because they realize that 80% 
of cybersecurity flaws and problems they face come from pa bad password hygiene. It may seem silly, but this is a, a problem that continues to fester in corporations. And it, the only way to solve it is actually at the user level. Um, and so a B2B has been tremendous for us. So shifting a business from a B2C to a B2B uh, a strategy has been a, a big challenge for us, a big challenge in a good way, but it's required adjustment across all aspects of the business. I'm sure you can imagine that. Yeah. And were you there when they made this pivot? Uh, I would say the pivot started when I had joined. You know, we had the first mm -hmm. two, three big clients that started to say, hey, we use it for consumer. We're going to, I want to bring this to my staff. And I would say two years ago, I was definitely there. I've been here almost seven. Two years mm -hmm. ago is when we said, you know what, this is really where we need to spend time focusing, not only from a sales and marketing, but from a product development standpoint. So that's what we call our North Star. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's a great segue here. Just a question I follow up on that is, you know, as a CFO, how did you help shift the business to see that? It sounds like there was, you know, there were piloting this with a few customers. It sort of felt like that was the right direction when you came. What was the sort of analysis that you did? What was the sort of persuasion you had to do from the CFO seat to shift the business to take on this new business model? Yeah, I, I think the biggest one, and it was a collaborative effort. It wasn't just, let's say, me mm -hmm. who noticed it by any means. You know, I was I was part of a team that that put together those observations. But the biggest one is. You know, you're in a, we've always been very lucky at Dashlane. We have a consumer business where it's a freemium model. So we, 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 every month, we have hundreds of thousands of people who are creating accounts um, using Dashlane. Some stop using it, some continue to use us for free, and many convert uh, to paid subscriptions. And of those, some will start to, to churn. Our churn rate is very low, which is fantastic. And the free users, even a year or two later, find themselves converting to the paid service because they see more value as they've learned to use the tool in uh, upgrading uh, the, the, the features that they need to use. But that, is, uh, that drives very individual kind of consumer level growth. What we found on the B2B side is significant land and expand opportunities. We have clients that we've been working with for three, four years that are adding more and more divisions and employees every single year, even in the middle of a term. And that has really? provided significant growth, a great tailwind for growth for us. Um, and, and then separately, the other thing we've noticed, and this is more product-led, is the observation that businesses uh, need a, a partner like us to work to help them with adoption, that a company like Dashlane that has obsessed about end-user experience for its end-user tool, which, by the way, is the same whether you're an employee or a consumer, that mm -hmm. obsession has turned into high levels of adoption. So, you know, you have this constant inbound flow of leads, and you don't want to say no to that, and you realize that the growth opportunity on the, B, on the business side is bigger. This is just basic metrics, right, that we've seen. Yeah. And those metrics really led to that decision. Yeah. And I guess maybe just high level, where are some of the other big things that changed as you made this pivot from either financial reporting, operational accounting of how you like managed invoices or you know, managed customers, um, or even like pipeline management? Yeah, very, very, very good question. And, and there were several. And I would say 
not ne- I'm going to name you two or three, but they're not necessarily all because we've shifted from B2C to B2B um, or that B2B has become a bigger driving force of our strategy. Um, first, you know, we've grown our, our sales and marketing team, especially our sales team that was very small when we were more just fielding inbound leads, the efforts on the lead gen and demand gen infrastructure, the investments in marketing on content, really wise guiding content, um, advising both clients and prospects about, you know, kind of being a thought leader in our Mm -hmm. space to be able to guide uh, CISOs and IT leaders to decide that now was the time. And then of course there is the engineering side, seeing our roadmap shift from purely focusing on the end user to also uh, adding features that were more for the administrator to imagine we have some clients that are in the thousands and thousands of employees. How do I, as an administrator, deploy, monitor, and and offboard when people leave, right? How do I manage all that in a seamless way? So we've had to invest in that as well. So that's, that's one big part where we, where we have invested and that's people related technology and roadmap related. The other thing is just the investment uh, that I mentioned Ciara earlier, the, it's, it's the investment in just our people organization. You know, yeah. we grew our team. I think we've probably doubled our team over the last two and a half years. And that takes a different level of effort, thinking about all aspects um, of the people organization and what our staff needs around the world. We went from when I joined, we had a small team in New York and a decent size, you know, maybe twice as big team in Paris. Today, we have about 140 people in both New York and Paris, and we have about 60 in Lisbon. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a, a, at a different scale than the 60 people worldwide we had a few years ago. And so it takes quite an investment to be able to do that. And of course, to br- everybody from customer support to engineering comes along for that ride um, focusing more and more on this, on B2B. Yeah. And I'm sure this is an entirely new sales motion. Your team had to learn of selling, you know, selling the side sales versus just having people sign up for the premium. Exactly. And it's, it, it's not only the sales motion, it's the idea that we used to have one head of sales with three, four salespeople. One would focus more, let's say on customer success. Today, we have a team of about 25 or 30 including sales engineers, including onboarding specialists, including uh, a much more established process for handling marketing qualified leads through the sales funnel. And the other thing that's always been part of our business long before I joined, as you can imagine, the natural progression from consumer to really enterprise grade B2B, which we do, but is not really our sweet spot. It's not the area we mostly focus on SMBs. What you have is, as for really small businesses, you just want a natural self-service kind of motion. You're not going to have a whole sales team fielding very small purchases. And so we've also evolved that as well. So we got consumer, you've got that self-service engine, and then you have for bigger B2B clients, you know, our established outbound team. Yeah, fantastic. And so besides this big pivot you've been, you know, managing over the last few years, what are some other big challenges you faced as CFO of Dashlane? Uh, look, you know what? I'm sure so, the, the biggest ones that come to mind are ones you've had to deal with. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the first is the way we work has completely shifted uh, over the last 
you know, over the last three years, over the last two years, um, today we have, you know, maybe 30% of our staff at most will come into an office at any point in time. So how do you adjust the way you work to be able to uh, still excel in every respect while have remote, having mostly a remote workforce? Whether people are in New York or in Paris or not, they still choose whether they work to uh, in the office or not. My entire team, and I, I keep a pretty small team, I've got about 13 people, I, I might have, you know, if it wasn't for t organ, uh, like meetings that we set up to see each other and to spend time together, we have people all over Connecticut, Arizona, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I got, uh, you know, people in Portugal, people in France, and that's only a team of 13. So we don't otherwise see each other as much. How do you adjust that? How do you adjust? Mm -hmm. And I know I'm getting into more the HR side, but it's an area I'm passionate about. How do you get to developing and training er younger staff uh, mm -hmm. earlier in their career without the ability of just seeing how people work? Because they're now on Zoom only in meetings that are pre-scheduled. But most of what I learned, I remember, was from people yeah. I was sitting next to. And so how are, you how are you trying to solve that now? What are some of the things you, your team's implemented? You know, I, I, there's, no, there's no magical answer, but there's a lot of work that Ciara and her team are doing coaching managers in order to be able, in their specific parts of the organization, to be able to advise those managers to organize themselves, to organize the work. When we have a new employee, we, we find a way to bring them to one of our offices for some of their team members to work with them for sort of onboarding. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'd say Dashlane does much, much better than any other company I've, uh, I've been at or seen, frankly, is the whole onboarding experience. Really mm -hmm. spending two, three, four weeks deeply ingraining and, and, and teaching any newcomer in any department about all facets of the business, whether it's metrics and finance, customer support, and, and that helps build those bonds, even if we are remote. I think the other thing that I, at least as a manager, try and do is it's all the more important to make time for one-on-ones every week and to not be scared to give tough feedback. You know, it, it, mm. if, if, you, if you're right there with the person, it's very easy to have an impromptu conversation. If you're far away, it's also very easy to brush things under the carpet. And that's not good for either party. I, I've learned to see feedback as a gift. Uh, you just need to have enough thick skin to accept it, right? And you need to be smart enough to figure out how to give it in a way that, it will be that, that it's received in a productive way. But I find it's even more important when we're all remote. And just curious, what do you have a, uh, a specific way you like to share feedback or do you have a methodology you follow? Well, I, I, I'd like to say like, you know, brutal transparency, but brutal doesn't need to, you, you still need to think about how you share it. But I think transparency is super important. It, it, one of the most, uh, and it's, it may seem like, David, you should have learned this in college, but <laughs> it was reminded to me just in the last couple of years, assume best intentions. You know, assume best intent. It's a very freeing and a facilitating uh, thing if you just sit back and actually think about it, because you, you, you realize that whether an employee is performing or not, you know they are doing their best, and hopefully they know you're doing your best. And so you approach it recognizing this is a team member who's, who wants to succeed. 
And so th th that is, I think, uh, a sort of an icebreaker that allows you to then say, you know, these are the things that, you know, you, you know, you do mix up. Uh, hopefully you, you, you have some good things to say as well, but yeah. you know, you, you identify the areas where the person is excelling and then don't be afraid to say, look, I've got a couple of issues and I think they're holding you back. You know, I'm on your yeah. side, by the way, you know, and, and so that's, that's the thing. The reason you're giving that feedback is to make that person take it to the next level. And I think if you preface the feedback that way, you, you open the conversation up for better dialogue. It doesn't mean, Peter, that every conversation is mm -hmm. easy. It doesn't mean that there are no tears sometimes, but I think it's in the best interest of, the indivi of both individuals and of the company. Yeah, I, know. I totally hear you on this. I think that's a great reminder for everyone is, is around you know, that's an empathy for the person, but really understanding that everyone, if everyone's trying to do their best, you really avoid the fundamental uh, attribution error of like, oh, this person is just lazy versus maybe they're distracted or maybe they're busy. And they, you know, it really enables a manager to be curious about what went wrong or what, what, why something happened versus just saying like, oh, this is the way they are as a person. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe just to wrap up your time at Dashlane before we maybe move on to some older experiences or yeah. previous experiences of yours, like, you know, What's your biggest piece of advice for someone just starting out as a CFO and leading a finance team? Yeah, the, the, I w I'm, I'm not going to, well, I will repeat myself for a second, but I have another piece of advice, uh, especially Please. for CFOs. But I will repeat myself and say, know your strengths and weaknesses. Figure out uh, where are the, have a priority list of hires you need and mm -hmm. do not lower the bar. I don't care how desperate you are to fill a role. You know where your standards are. Do not lower the bar out of desperation. Having gone through it myself, I've had moments where I had key roles that I desperately needed filled. And I found myself sometimes pulled towards you know, lowering that bar. Fortunately, mm -hmm. I did not. And, uh, you know, I can, you know, I, I, again, I won't name names or identify anyone, but I'll say, thank God I didn't because ultimately the right person comes along and, and makes the whole world of difference. So I think hiring is super, super important, especially when you're small. If you're starting out as a CFO and you're an A, B company, every new addition, I know this is obvious maybe, but every new addition makes the world of difference in your life and in the company's life. And then the other thing I would say is uh, shifting gears in a way to data. You know, we talked about metrics and how important metrics are earlier in helping companies make, make decisions. Um, if, if you're a CFO who is in charge of data, or if you are definitely a major stakeholder in ensuring a single source of truth on any data that somehow gets to key performance metrics and finances, make sure that you invest in that data infrastructure early because it's one of those things where if you're a growing company that pile of you know back you know of refactoring that needs to be done is only going to get bigger and bigger so you know and i've learned that lesson the hard way you know having made mistakes myself you know i'll be honest uh, where you know it was it's it's good enough it's good enough it's good enough and then you say oh wow it's not good enough we need to take a step back Close, close the off. I'm I mean, speaking extremely, but yeah. turn everything off to be able to fix things. You know, and you don't. You you, you want to avoid that. Yeah, no, I, I I hear you. 
I think it really depends on the business model as well in terms of how early you need to get on top of that data and what, what good enough is going to be at various stages of your business. That's right. And, and I would say yeah. I would probably put defining key metrics, having consistency in how stakeholders across the business interpret those metrics. That is even more important than having the Rolls Royce of data engines installed, right? You can have mm -hmm. simplistic systems, uh, even homegrown, but as long as they're all defining and measuring the things the same way as everybody thinks. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are some key pieces there. Yeah. It's interesting. Like we were talking about like who your key hires are. One of my key hires, usually it's always a head of rev ops or sales ops. If that person doesn't exist already. Cause I find, especially in the B2B SaaS world, you know, garbage in, garbage out to the CRM. And, but some, all that data is so important for any sort of key guys reporting as a head of finance. You're a, a thousand percent right. I, I, RevOps at Dashlane reports into the, uh, our head of B2B, our head of sales. Uh, but mm -hmm. um, I have a, a, a head of FP&A and the head of RevOps and the head of FP&A are, are like, you know, again, I've used the word earlier, but partners in crime. They're, they're great, yeah. great partners who really depend on each other and, and they work really well together. I'm delighted mm -hmm. to say. Yeah. So you mentioned a little bit about hiring as, you know, a key piece um, of a, as advice for as a CFO. You know, what are the traits you look for when you're hiring a finance team? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to say it's not just a finance team. So when I think back at the moments mm -hmm. where I've had IT under me or customer support or HR, like legal, I, I would say what I'm about to tell you uh, is common across all of them, perhaps except one item. Uh, the first is work ethic. And by the way, I, I, I'm almost 50 years old, okay? And I'm the first to admit that what I'm going to say is through my lenses after my career, it may not be the top priority in that order or in, even on people's top list in, in a, you know, if they're looking at it through different lenses. So that's just my only opinion. But <laughs> work ethic is super important. I lead by example. I don't put pressure. There's no such thing as FaceTime. Uh, it, it's all about delivery. But uh, there's an element of work ethic that is super important, and it actually translates best in one of our values, which is about ownership. You know, I've always treated, uh, especially younger companies, like a baby. I've got two kids, and I've got Dashlane, and before that, Makespace, and before that, Fab.com. They're like little babies, and they need your constant care, uh, obsession, worries, all of that. You know, I, I take that parallel. I think of that parallel and I need my bench, my circle of key direct reports to feel kind of the same way. They're holding a baton in this relay and nobody else is going to run that second uh, step of the relay or the last lap or whatever the right analogy. So they, they own it. You know, there's a sense of accountability. So I think that's super important. The other one is, you you know, the startup world, even mm -hmm. five, 10 year old startups are the same. It's chaos. You know, you never know what half of your day is going to be like. So you, you, you really need to have grit, to have a level of autonomy or a comfort with being autonomous. You need to, mm -hmm. to be resourceful. You can't always be asking for you know everything. You need to figure out how do I find my way around, right? Um, and so that's super important. 
And then, you know, we have another value at Dashlane. Maybe that's why I'm here after so long. Like mm -hmm. the values of the business are reasonably well aligned with how I, I hire is the idea of uh, being impatiently ambitious. Um, mm -hmm. And and I, I do look for that in many people I hire, people who are driven, people who are ambitious and know that there is a point where you may you you have to apply the 80 20 or 90 10 rule where i may not get this perfect but it's good enough because there's a sense of urgency to making a certain decision now once you get specific in finance obviously anything around analytical chops comfort with numbers you know is, mm -hmm. is an obvious skill that i test for and then finally peter and i'm sure you look for this as well you know, especially at a more senior level, I look for people with strong leadership and communication skills. Um, I my my three, four most senior people who report to me, I'd like to think of them as proxies for me if I'm on vacation or mm -hmm. if I'm not around. Yeah. And so I expect them to be able to, you know, grab the mic if necessary. Yeah, and I think that sort of the business communication piece is so important and something that may not be picked up on early on in a lot of people's finance careers. I think by the time you get to the CFO, it's all about communication more so than even numbers. Yeah, that's right. So I'd love to dive in a little bit around, um, you know, you've done a lot of different companies through your career and you've um, been involved in lots of sort of debt equity fundings as well as both buy and sell side M&A. Can you talk about a little bit of your experiences around the sort of the capital market side of the CFO? Yeah. Um, and maybe some ideas of like what CFOs should be, you know, on the lookout for, or, you know, any other sort of trends or um, insights? Yeah, no, happy to. I, the first thing I'll say uh, in advance of this podcast, I did a little bit of a tally of mm -hmm. you know you know these different uh, uh, fundraising and and M and A and other transactions uh, that I've done, and I, I don't see this as a sort of like notches on the belt or you know a resume <laughs> thing, but uh, but it is it does add up. You know, I've had a chance to do uh, probably ten rounds of of equity fundraising across these five companies, uh, two of them especially getting deep in, into the later stages, probably totaling six, $700 million in equity funding. Um, uh, did debt facilities across all of them, probably another hundred million there. Mm -hmm. um, and both on the buy and sell side, um, both both companies sold, like we sold to two of our companies, uh, the, the, the earlier companies I've been with, uh, both B2B SaaS uh, companies, mm -hmm. and uh, along the way purchased five companies. Um, oh, wow. And, and so that was really interesting, being the acquirer as well. Obviously, there were smaller companies we were buying, uh, but it was very interesting and uh, uh, pretty good lessons learned there. And then finally, something that was not as prevalent in, let's say, my first decade as a CFO, but definitely the last 10 years is you see more secondaries going on, you yeah. know, where where you are facilitating tender offers for earlier employees, early investors being able to get some liquidity, uh, you know, founders, things like that. And so we've done a little bit of that. That's great. And so I guess on the... Uh, I equity investing side or equity fundraising side, you know, how's, how's that changed over your career and how's that changed maybe also maybe from stage to stage? Yeah, interesting. So oh, I, I don't think it's changed, I, I'd say, that much over my career. There is a process. I tell my team, I tell myself, one thing I always want to be uh, and, it's, and it's a pressure on, you talk about organization of data and information, I always want to be like 72 hours away from a data room. 
you never know who's going to come knocking. So always be ready, you know, for, you know, just at least an initial pack of data to be available, uh, whether it's for M&A or fundraising purposes. Uh, and I've been surprised along the way, fundraisings that happened, you know, without any plan, you know, unsolicited. I think secondaries, as I mentioned before, are things that have happened much more in, in the last mm -hmm. five to 10 years. So that's something you just need to be ready for. But that's changed over my time. In the early days, there was no notion of li much liquidity for anyone until it was for everyone. But fundraising in general, um, I wouldn't say has changed. You have an identified group. If you're doing an organized process, you have an identified group you're, you're targeting. You start through your network to try and get as many good. Uh, you don't want those cold introductions. That rarely works. Yep. So you, 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 know, you use your, your uh, bench of great investors to open doors for you or your mm -hmm. own. And, you know, if anything, let, let's be honest, you know, and, and I'm seeing this more observing earlier stage companies, not so much looking inward at mm -hmm. Dashlane, but over the last five years in particular, until earlier this year, just fundraising has gotten, was getting easier and easier with larger rounds at earlier stages and higher valuations. Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the biggest observation of what's gone on um, uh, that has changed. It hasn't necessarily been something that's changed my life, but I've observed it. And I've observed it and it, worry, it, it, it was worrying me. I, I, it worries me less today. That's great. And, you know, as you mentioned, you raised $100 million of debt, you know, for folks who may have not done debt yet or raised debt before. So what are your top three differences between running an equity raise versus a debt raise? Um, three things. And, and look, CFOs who haven't done it before, uh, you know, uh, it, it takes, it takes uh, getting used to, you know, like, ride, like learning to ride a bike. But uh, the difference between an equity and a debt raise, I, I would say this, you do need equity. You don't need debt, but you actually need to put debt in place. And this is the big advice. Put debt in place when you don't need it. It, it, it. Do not think of debt as an alternative to equity. It is there to supplement equity. It is kind of an umbrella uh, that's there for a rainy day. And so in every company I've been with, those who were well-funded, those who were less well-funded, we always had debt facilities in place. And I always, the minute you do a fundraising round, right, equity, that's when you go and see, can I supplement my debt facility? And I know you're going to say, yeah, but, you know, you know, like we were always told, don't owe anybody any money. Like, why would you borrow if you have all this equity? I, I agree. I get it. You can negotiate and structure that debt to not be that costly, by the way. There are many ways you can do that, but you do not want to go out and look for debt uh, when you don't have the additional resources in your company. Uh, so, you know, like for me, those are, those are the, 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 the big um, uh, lesson learned and advice. In terms of the difference, the difference is the CFO can run a debt round by him or herself. You know, you do not need the CEO. You keep, can keep him or her updated. You can advise the board, let them know, have them decide between options. Obviously, they need to be involved and ultimately they need to approve it. But 
it's the kind of thing that's been actually very uh, rewarding for me because I've, it's literally a process. And over time, the other great thing as a CFO, I've built great, you know, really good relationships with various lenders across the spectrum from venture debt to banks. And, you know, you that's a portfolio you can look on and, and for both advice and keeping them in the loop of your business for the right time when they can work with you again. Yeah, I think those you know, both really resonate with me and my experience raising venture debt as well. Not quite a hundred million yet, but uh, someday. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and I think the other, yeah, I, I also agree that lesson learned of like, you know, debt sometimes is annoying because it's expensive and I'm not, I don't need it right now. When you need it, you want it. And so prepare for that rainy day. That's right. And, and, and I would say this, and I think this is changing less fast than the equity markets from my recent observations is, you know, obviously there's a lot of capital out there across the spectrum, including debt funds, you know, including both banks all the way to venture mm -hmm. uh, debt companies. And I do believe if you've got good unit economics as a business, you have a, a good line of sight to how you're going to grow that business for the next two, three years. By the way, that doesn't mean a CFO needs to be a fortune teller, but a good path and stable mm -hmm. ground that you've built, you're building your company on. Lenders will be there and don't be afraid. It's one of the big things I repeat to my team. If you don't ask, you don't get. Don't be embarrassed or ashamed to, with the advice of other fellow CFOs, to, to negotiate the terms of debt rounds, frankly, to negotiate anything in life. But uh, I think you can, to your point, make debt less costly when you don't immediately need it. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's having those multiple relationships, you can also have some, make terms a little more competitive that way as well. Yeah. Right in a, process, a tight process. Um, maybe my, one of my last questions on the M&A side. For the buy side for you, were you involved in, were you like, with these people who came to you, did you like seek out these companies to buy? How did those processes work? And, and maybe like how, how like, did they, were they successful for the companies you acquired? Yeah. So, right. So on the buy side, so we had a very small acquisition we did. This was back in 2014 at Dashlane. And it was a small company that had built a specific technological capability that we saw as strategically a perfect fit into what we wanted to offer our customers, whether they were consumers or businesses. In fact, when we bought it, we were obsessed about the consumer side almost uh, solely. So it was very much a, a great feature to tag on. And so that was easy. It was still a very early stage company. We were yeah. mostly buying it for the technology. There were no revenues or very little revenues yet. Due diligence can be very limited make sure the mm -hmm. IP is the IP. And, and the team that we were acquiring, an aqua hire, if you will, was four or five people. So in, none, in no way was that very, let's say, a disruptive or a challenge. At fab.com, though, we acquired a number of companies during my time there. And most of that was about, one was more product expansion, um, specifically as we started to think about building our own products in the furniture space. But the other three were all about expansion geographically. And, you know, I would say in those cases, the process, um, you, you need to divide and conquer. Make sure, you know, like one of the things that keeps me here after all these years and that attracted me to Dashlane to begin with is all about the quality of the executive team. Uh, obviously, you got to love the product and be selling it without thinking you are. 
but it's, it's your peers. And so when you're acquiring a company, obviously everybody's eating a little bit from that, that buffet, uh, not only in terms of the due diligence, but in terms of the impact that acquisition is going to have on the business, logistics, mm-hmm. product, customer support, finance, anything. And, and so you need to, I think finance ends up carrying the weight of organizing most of the due diligence as a project, project managing it. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you need to divide and conquer. Technology needs to look at whether the code, what, where are the roadblocks, where are the problems. So you, you, you really need, it's a team effort on that, on that front. That's great. And yeah, um, I think the integration piece is so important. And you know, starting up early with um, key stakeholders before the acquisition is that, you know, that key to that process. Totally agree. And, and by the way, I've, I've learned that also as a company acquired, <laughs> you know, um, and, and what that means in terms of how you are integrated into a larger company that has acquired you. So super important stuff, definitely. So before we wrap up, what's next for Dashlane or coming up for you? What's coming up for Dashlane and, and me? Like for me, look, I'm, I'm, you know, keeping my head down and focusing on continuing to help grow and scale the business. Um, you know, and, uh, and that's growing the team as needed, but keeping it lean and mean and being able to support the organization as it grows. For Dashlane, I've talked to you re- already numerous times, you know, in, in our hour together about the focus on B2B. So it's, it's really, uh, as, a, as a company, uh, continuing to focus on developing awareness about what it is we do and why it's important and why when companies, you know, know that, uh, you know, they may have all their other cybersecurity boxes ticked, that password management is actually a major v- uh, a solution to a vector of threat that they do need to address. It's, a, you know, it's helping for me and, and for the company, it's obsessing over adoption and how do we facilitate the deployment of Dashlane in the companies that we work with. And, uh, you know, I think that's about it. I think that's going to keep us busy for quite some time. <laughs> All right. So, well, you definitely had great insights here for our listeners. So thanks so much for being a phenomenal guest. Thank so I just want to know if there's any social media or LinkedIn or Twitter that people could follow you or get in touch. Oh, that's, uh, that's uh, thanks for, for asking. You know, given that my last name is Laughter, it, it is, uh, you know, I'm, I, I, I think I'm the only David Laughter. So if you search David Laughter, you'll find me on, on LinkedIn. And uh, my email is david at uh, dashlane.com. More than happy to have anybody reach out to me uh, and uh, spend time with them if I can be of help. Awesome. And of course, uh, please subscribe to our podcast and so you don't miss an episode.